500 years ago, there was a German monk named Martin Luther, not to be confused with Martin Luther King Jr., okay, that's whose birthday is tomorrow. He's the black civil rights leader named after this German monk from 500 years ago, 1517 in Germany. There was a priest, his name was Martin Luther, and he had what you would say was an overactive conscience. He was continually guilty and he could not find peace with God, and it drove him to become a monk. He joined a monastery and went into seclusion. He would spend hours every day begging God for forgiveness, searching his heart to find any sin and dark motive, and he desperately wanted to get to the bottom of his heart and clean it out and so that he would not feel ashamed before God while he prayed or while he read the scriptures and so on. He would do severe acts of penance to punish his body for his sin, trying to cleanse sin and earn God's favor but he wrote later in life that the deeper he went into that cycle of searching for sin and confessing and trying to do penance the more despairing he got because he realized I can't do it I cannot be good I cannot obey God C.S. Lewis said no man finds out how bad he is until he has tried very hard to be good and that's true and it's what Martin Luther lived out. And he said later in life that as a 30-something-year-old priest and monk, he came to hate God. He said, I hated God because he demanded a perfection of me that I could not achieve. A few years ago at the University of Pennsylvania, there was a, a rash of suicides on campus. So they put together a task force to study the mental health of students and This task force produced this report, and I quote from the report. It says, The pressures engendered by the perception that one has to be perfect in every academic and co-curricular and social endeavor can lead to stress, and in some cases, distress. In turn, distress can manifest as demoralization, alienation, or conditions like anxiety or depression. For some students, mental illness can lead to suicide. It's not just college students that are loaded down with merciless demands for performance and perfection. Everybody today faces a pressure to perform, to produce, to make something of oneself, to become acceptable, to make a difference in the world, to justify your existence. The world imposes narcissism. It says change the world, be an example, be a leader, be a success, express yourself, create yourself. And it all throws us back on our own performance. And that may leads to fear and stress as a way of life. And then when we falter in some irreversible way, because in our online world nothing is ever forgotten or deletable, then depression and self-hatred and even suicide ensue. 500 years ago, Martin Luther is famous for having had a revelation that sparked a reformation. He was agonizing over his scriptures one day again, and he said he received a lightning bolt of inspiration, a revelation that freed his soul from his lifetime of an agonized conscience and performance pressures before God. And this is how he described it, quote, I grasped that the righteousness of God is that righteousness by which through faith and sheer mercy God justifies us through faith. Thereupon I felt myself to be reborn and to have gone through open doors into paradise. He was experiencing what we would now very easily define as faith. He moved from this 
horribly beaten down conscience of I am a miserable failure loser of a sinner and I can't possibly please God, which is true, to faith in Jesus that God's command for righteousness is not a demand that we behave to earn something. It is a demand that we command that we behave like Jesus did something. Hello. And he said, I felt myself to be reborn and have gone through open doors into paradise. A long hoped for assurance washed over the fretful young man, which we would call faith, and his love for God burst into flames. He was forgiven. He was loved. He was free from impossibility. He was righteous by faith in Jesus Christ. God was not disapproving. God was not scowling. God loved him and wanted to make him righteous and make him clean. God was for him and not against him. And all that was new information to a man who had been a priest for 10 or 15 years. Those of us who live to perform according to the pressures of the world will never find that peace. Because the world is never going to be merciful. The pressure never lets up. The demands never stop. The voices never get quiet. Luther found peace when he discovered faith in God's grace, but the world is never gracious. There is never any peace. There is always another demand, another performance, another failure, another requirement, another embarrassment, another need, another catastrophe. Can I get an amen? Amen. Those who live for the approval of other people will find that the crowd is never satisfied, the mob is never silent. The world is always hungry for another bite of you. The same voices that praise you for one thing will criticize you for another. And the same world that rewards you for some good performance will strip you naked for a minor failure. Perfection is always demanded, but never allowed. I said perfection is always demanded, but never allowed. By the world, to us. Perfection is always demanded. And never allowed. In God, perfection is not demanded and it is given. Hello. They will put you up on a pedestal and then they will kick it out from under you. Elementary school kids are ruined by posters in their teacher's classroom that say, You can be anything you want to be, and you can do anything if you put your mind to it. So then, when that third grader goes up to be 20 and he's not, being anything he can be, who's the only logical, rational one to blame? It's me. I'm a failure because my second grade teacher told me if I just tried hard enough, I could do anything. Well, it was a lie. High school students are told that they're nothing if they don't have an education and go to college, and the pressure to perform in grades and sports and extracurriculars is intense. College students are commanded to go out and change the world and make a difference. Advertisers tell us we won't be happy unless we have X product. You're a failure if you don't make X number of dollars. You're a failure if you haven't saved X amount for retirement. We have to conform to this beauty standard and that weight standard and that fashion standard. You must present perfection online and social media and dating sites. You must have something to offer. You must perform. You must meet the demands of the world. And all of this is a crushing weight of perfectionism, producing anxiety and depression like no previous generation. And it also produces psychotic narcissists 
a generation of grotesquely selfish individuals who believe all that brainwashing, that they can accomplish anything, they can change the world, they can be rich and happy and healthy and beautiful and financially successful and have a Pinterest-worthy house and a Pinterest-worthy baby shower and happy kids with straight teeth and great grades. And in the end, it's only other people who stand in the way from you reaching all that perfection. The fantasy, the illusion, the lie of success and perfection and happiness is only an inch away if you would just try harder, if you would borrow more money, if you would sleep less, you would finally be satisfied. You can do it. You can achieve it. You can have it. You must do it. You must buy it. By the way, Pinterest is evil. Get it out of your life. I'm smiling, but I'm serious. It is stressing you out. It is forcing you to spend money and time that you don't have, trying to live up to a standard of creativity and decor that you don't have and you can't afford. We set ourselves up for disappointment because we have ludicrous ideas about what we can accomplish. Seriously, we are insane because we buy into this garbage that the world puts in front of us through advertising and, and there are seriously amazingly creative people out there, but it isn't us. <laughs> it must be somebody else, all right? So we set ourselves up for expectation and then we, reality doesn't live up to that. And then we somehow think we've failed God or we've failed other people's expectations. Or you, but really, you've only failed your own fantasy about who you thought you would be by this time or how much money you thought you would have. You know, this is not just, you, this is not just Pinterest. This is not just us trying to live up to the expectations of other people and have a perfect first birthday party for our precious little angel. This is really a really good metaphor for God's standard and our pitiful little attempts to live up to his righteousness. Seriously, it really is a perfect metaphor for how we see scripture. We see God's holiness and his righteousness and we try to recreate it and the difference is just humiliating. We've set ourselves up by our own false expectations. We try to not just try to copy somebody else's perfectly decorated tree, but with God also. Romans 6.16 says, You are a slave to whatever you present yourself to serve and obey. Romans 6.16, You are a slave to whatever you present yourself to serve and obey. In the Bible days, they'd go to the idol's temple and bow down and promise that God that they would serve God him or her, if that God would bless their life. Well, we don't go into the idol's temple, but you spend hours looking at fitness magazines and you give yourself to that God. I will serve you. I will be a slave to this imaginary image of who I am, and if I reach it, I will be happy. Hello? Or money, or your dream home, or whatever else. Whatever we seek to become or to create in our future is what we enslave ourselves to. Hopefully, you are only living for the purposes of Jesus. Because we are to be slaves of, the, of Christ. That's right. 
and nothing else. Romans 6 says, we become slaves to whatever we present ourselves to. If your goal is to become the head honcho at work, you will become the slave of your employer. Come on. We present ourselves to the world continuously for approval. We obey the demands and expectations of other people instead of God on a daily basis. Pinterest tells me my child's birthday party must look like this then yes, I will pay whatever it costs to have that. My wedding has to look like this, then yes, that's what I will do. Advertisers tell me I have to own this, and I say yes, and I will enslave myself to debt to pay for it. My teachers tell me I have to go to college or I'm, not, I'm, I'm a loser. Of course, they're not going to use that word, but that's the message. Well, then yes, and I'll rack up tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of dollars of debt to pay for it. Maybe there's something you'd like to try, but you'd be embarrassed to let somebody see you trying it. Well, no, I'll be a slave to public opinion. Proverbs 29, 25 says the fear of man is a trap. The fear of other people's opinion is a trap. Romans 6, 14 says you are not under the law, but under grace. The gospel is good news to those who are trying to please God and those who are trying to please people. To those who cannot be perfect before God, the good news is Jesus already was. And you can be forgiven and your past washed away and you can be made righteous before God. To those who are trying to be perfect before the world, who will never forgive you or let you forget your past, the good news is stop trying. They are not your judge and their rules do not apply. Somebody would say, yes, yes, this is what I want. I want to be free. Well, let's think about that. Do you really want to be free from other people's opinions and rules and demands and approval? If you are, then you'll be treated like Jesus. Because the truth is, we really like rules. We like law. We want a checklist. We want God to be Santa Claus with a nice list and a naughty list, and then we can know which one we're on. If that's news to you, God doesn't have one of those. That's Santa Claus in Elf. That's not God. But we would really like it if he was, because we would really like to know where we stand. We want to know where we rank. We desperately want other people's approval, but possibly more... We like giving our own approval or withholding it, as the case may be, because the power to judge is a huge power. It is a really powerful feeling to judge somebody else, because of course we would never judge ourselves. We would only judge other folks. There is great power in judgment. The original sin that Adam and Eve what they wanted was for to be able to decide what was good and evil. And that's still what we want to do. We want to judge other people and acquit ourselves. We can judge other people and excuse ourselves is the knowledge of good and evil. Proverbs says that the fool delights in giving his own opinion. And if that doesn't describe our online world right now, then nothing does. The fool delights in sharing his own opinion. 
We are addicted to praise and good opinion. We do what we do best because of attention and compliments are a drug. We all know that rejection hurts. If somebody that we really care about rejects us or doesn't care, it really, really hurts. But what you don't know is that praise and compliments are just as poisonous, which is why Jesus, whenever the crowd started to hear Jesus, he ran off. He literally ran away. When he did a miracle, he told everybody, you can't tell what I just did because he understood that praise from people is just as poisonous as rejection because it's a trap. I was talking with Will last yesterday on the way home from Wallow County, and if you don't know my son, Will's 15. He's back there at the computer, and he's a straight-A student. He's never gotten a B-plus in his career. Uh, he's a straight-A student, and everybody in school knows it. Everybody, he's two grades ahead in his math, and everybody in his class, everybody in school knows Will is at the top. I told him, we were, as we were talking, I said, you know, I always want you to do your best. And if you are lazy and get an A-, minus, that's not good enough. It's not okay. But if you work your tail off in some subject that comes along and a C-plus is the best you can do, I will not be upset with you. Do you understand that? And he said, yes. I said, but how would you, how would you feel if you got a C-plus? I'd be pretty embarrassed. I said, apart from just the grade that ruins your GPA and scholarships and all that stuff that he's going for, I said, you would be embarrassed in front of your class, wouldn't you? Yes, because you have a reputation. Even if you busted your butt and worked as hard as you could and you had no reason to be ashamed for a C plus, you would be ashamed. I said, yeah. Because our reputation really matters to us. We're really glad it wasn't our name in the paper. We're really glad it wasn't our mugshot on the jail roster. So we only do what we do best. Because we like that attention. The most terrifying thing in the world would be to be rejected or disapproved. We like and we desperately want a good reputation. Jesus made himself of no reputation, but we sure like our own. We want success and influence and money and attention. We want to know that we are valuable and that our life has meaning and that we have accomplished something. And it's all a trap. But we want it all. Henry David Thoreau said, The mass of men live lives of quiet desperation. Which is so true, because how many of your decisions are made based on what other people think? Or what somebody else wants? How much of what you don't do, do you avoid because of fear of how you would look in front of other people? Somebody would say, Mitch, I've heard all this before. I live as free as I can. I'm not a slave to public opinion. Oh, really? How many of you ladies would dare to go out of your house without makeup on? I know a few of you. A large number of you wouldn't dare. It would terrify you. I don't have any right to, and I'm not going to, but if I went full Mennonite on you, and I forbade makeup in church, there would be many of you ladies that would never come back to this church. You know, they have their scripture, and they're not wrong. They're not wrong. 
I don't think makeup is a sin. But if there is any part of you that would be scared to have somebody show up at your door if you aren't made up, or if you had to go to the grocery store without your makeup, you are in chains to other people's opinion. And you spend a lot of time and money on something that's really just fear and vanity. If you really don't care what anybody else thinks about you, why are you hiding that sin addiction? If you really don't care, why have you not confessed it and gotten free? It's because you, you care more about not being ashamed than you do about being free. The truth is we like the approval and compliments when we lose weight. We like the comments about our new car. We like to drop hints about our accomplishments at work. We're really, really glad that it wasn't us that publicly fell or got arrested. Even though we're stressed out, we really like to be busy because busyness is one of our world's predominant indicators that you have worth and value. You've got things to do. The more frantically busy, the better, because if you're not over-occupied, then you're inferior to those who are. If you're not running, you must be lazy. And if there is an unforgivable sin in American culture, it is laziness. As demonstrated by a lack of busyness and a lack of growth in whatever it is you're supposed to be building. So we're happy to be the stressed out slaves of busyness. If I can just accomplish X, Y, and Z, I will be respected. If I can look a certain way, I'll be attractive. If I behave a certain way, I'll be loved. If I toe the party line, I'll be approved. If I quote the cliches, I'll be accepted. The cold hard truth is that as much as we claim that we are free individuals, we are really a large crowd of junior high kids desperate to avoid ruthless rejection. And we will only project that which will earn us points, that which will gain us praise, that which will increase our standing, that which will be approved. We desperately have to justify our existence to this God we call society. And that is what Martin Luther so desperately wanted all along, was justification. How can I stand before God? How can I feel clean? How can I be free from a guilty conscience? How can I avoid his rejection? How can I justify my life before a perfect and holy God? And he found justification in faith in Jesus Christ. The fact is that we cannot be perfect. We cannot perform. We cannot please God by our own goodness. We cannot attain to his standards and demands of holiness. Nor can we achieve earthly success, at least not very many of us. We cannot please other people. We cannot perform for the crowds the way they want. We cannot live up to the world's standards of beauty and wealth and accomplishment and education and youth and influence and, and, and any more than we can live up to God's perfection. The gospel is the freeing message that you don't have to be a slave to perfection. Since you can't anyway, quit trying and live in faith that God loves you in Christ. Just believe that you are loved and received by the only one who matters anyway. Only God's opinion matters. And he told Samuel that he looks at the heart of a person, never on the outside. Since Jesus does not demand your perfection and the world will never stop demanding it, quit being a slave to debt and fear and rejection and public opinion and anxiety and reputation and image and accomplishment. 
Just have faith that Jesus has paid for your failures and that as you put your faith and obedience in Jesus, God receives you without any judgment at all. Listen very closely. I am not saying that we don't need to think about pleasing God. We must obey Him. But we obey Him from a position as a son or daughter who is loved and adopted, not a servant who must grovel to please his master. Do you hear me? The son and the daughter of God will do the same things, the same deeds as the servant of God. But one is doing it out of exciting love and gratitude, and the other is hoping that maybe something will make God smile. They might do the same things, but with a completely different attitude, and that is called faith. Do you hear me? I'm not saying we don't need to worry about pleasing God, God loves you, whatever you do, no matter what, and just go out and live life however you want. That is not at all what I am saying. We obey God out of love and deepest gratitude for the salvation and forgiveness he has already given instead of trying to earn some forgiveness that we have yet to qualify for. A real Christian will have to obey God in personal sacrifice, in pain, in difficulty. But again, it's from a knowledge that we know we are pleasing to him. We are not trying to appease him. Do you hear it? They might do the same things, but it is a universe of difference. One is, thank you God for loving me. I know you love me and I want to love you back and serve you. And we'll do the same thing as this person over here, but this person is doing it out of stress and fear. And can I make God happy? Does God love me? If I just do enough good things, maybe he'll be pleased and he might let me in the back door of heaven. And this person over here is serving God and obeying the same way, but he's doing it out of celebration and joy and forgiveness and happiness. And thank you, God. I love you so much. Thank you for forgiving me. I don't deserve it. Thank you for giving it to me. Do you see it? We do have to please God, but we do it as a son or daughter who God is already pleased. Not trying to earn the salvation or qualify for it. And I am also not saying, hear me, listen, I am not saying we don't care about what other people think. We do care about other people's feelings. We do care about what they need. We do care about what they think. People who are, people who are idiots, I don't care what they think. I'm going to be me. That's rebellion and it's from hell. It is really evil and selfish to not care what other people think. But again, it's about the attitude of our hearts. Because real love is always concerned with serving and relating to other people. But a real Christian will work with effort and excellence for the Lord and for our employer and for our family and for our church. But we do it from a position of freedom. Not groveling for praise and not trying to avoid being rejected or chewed out or getting in trouble. But just, I love you and I'm going to serve you. Do you hear it? Nobody should go to work tomorrow. And say, well, my pastor said I don't have to worry about pleasing people, so I'm done trying to please my boss. No, because of Jesus, you should be the hardest working employer your boss has. Not, though, out of fear of, oh, I have to serve the boss like a slave, but I serve Jesus. This is the job he has given me, so I'm happy to be here and I give myself to this work. 
If you make yourself a begrudging, angry, rebellious slave at work, then they're stealing your time and your energy. If you give it, that's love. You may do on the outside the same thing, but one does it in faith and the other does it in fear and trying to be approved and keep everybody around me happy. And it's exhausting and it's stress and it'll kill you. When you do it in love, God will fill you up and you'll be full of life. A real Christian in real faith loves other people from a position of freedom, not worried about rejection or praise, just doing the right thing. That's it. So I am concerned with what you think and what you want and what you need and how you feel. But not so I can keep you happy, it's so that I can do the right thing for you, even if that makes you mad. I'm constantly thinking about you as your pastor. I'm constantly thinking about you and what you need and what you want. But I'm only trying to figure out what is the right thing to do. I am never trying to figure out what is going to keep the group happy. I do want to know what you like and what works well and what I need to change and how I need to speak and present and love and pray and all that stuff. But I try not to concern myself too much with appearances and I try not to compare myself with other pastors, although that is nearly impossible. I try not to avoid some subject or decision because of who wouldn't like it. But I'm constantly thinking about other people. But I can't do it in fear because that's a prison. Politicians very gladly and willingly go to that prison. And then they find it's completely impossible to keep everybody happy. And part of the crowd is praising them and the other half is flogging them. There's a lot of pastors that do the same thing. It is completely impossible. So then other people are like, I don't care about anybody. I'm just going to be me. That is not God. That is not love. Everything we do is out of love for other people, not to express ourselves. The world does not need you. We need Jesus. But all of that is by faith. It really is because faith is believing what we don't see and feel and it is not natural to our flesh or our feelings to believe that we are loved and accepted and received. It is not natural at all for us to feel valuable. So we have to do it by faith. Galatians 4.4 tells us that we are born under the law. And Hebrews 8.10 says that God writes his law on our minds. So in our DNA... In our spirit, we are law conscious. We are rule oriented. And we are constantly, we are pre programmed to try to stay out of trouble. Martin Luther said that the law is a constant guest in our conscience. We're always aware of either God or other people. What are they thinking? What should I do? Is that person happy with me today? Whether it's your boss or your mother-in-law, there's always somebody to worry about keeping happy. There's always it, God's watching. Hello? So it is the natural state of our being to be rule-oriented, to be performance-oriented, to be approval-oriented. It is normal for our fleshly feelings and thoughts to be oriented toward law and self-righteousness and self-justification, to have a fear of rejection and a desperation for approval. We all have an automatic fear of getting in trouble. 
Babies even. Studies have been done where babies are shown pictures of people smiling and they gravitate toward that and they show them a picture of someone frowning and they cry. Brand new spanking newborn babies are programmed toward approval. Smiles. None of us want to be frowned at. Youngest children love the approval of parents as they learn to walk and draw and ride a bike. We are programmed in our DNA, in our very spirit, to desire praise and approval, but then other people around us teach us to perform to get it. You hear me? Our parents and our teachers and the people around us taught us to perform to be approved. Most parents do not discipline their kids. They really just manipulate them to behave a certain way. Kids learn very early that certain behaviors earn smiles and certain behaviors earn screams. Parents use isolation tactics like grounding their kids or time out or fun or room to control their behavior, but it doesn't deal at all with the sin in their child's heart. It just controls their behavior and teaches the kid that they are in trouble. So the kid learns to work their parents in the school system and all the behavior controls, and they don't really do anything about the sin and the rebellion in their heart, and they just stay out of trouble, and they learn to perform. If I behave a certain way, I won't be in trouble. They learn to manipulate their authorities, and then eventually they learn to hate or fear authorities. And this happened to you. You were born that way, and then all of the adults in your life reinforced it. Taught you how to work the system and how to either be afraid or be angry and rebel. How many of you get instantly nervous when you see a police car? Whether you're doing anything wrong at all or not, if there is a police car <laughs> and you look at the speedometer... Yesterday, Will and I are coming home from Wallowa County. We're up on the icy road, and we're going 45 behind a vehicle, and a state officer is coming the other way, and the car in front of me slowed down. We were already only going 45 on a very straight stretch between Enterprise and Lost Team. We're going 45, totally safe, and the car in front of me slows down just, just because we met a stater. And God help us if the officer pulls in behind us. While we're going down the road. <laughs> what am I doing? Is, does, does my license plate expire? Does my lights on? Ah, what's he doing? He's calling me in. I know he's calling me in. <laughs> Maybe he's just going where he needs to go. Maybe you can smile and wave and say, thank you for doing your job. I really appreciate it. But no, it's instant nervousness. I am in trouble. I feel guilty even though I know it's irrational. You bunch of psychos. It is our psychotic reaction to be afraid of being in trouble even when we're not. The Bible says the wicked run even when no one chases him. We have a guilty conscience. Hello. What happens to your heart rate if the boss were to call you into his or her office? What would happen? Oh no, what did I do wrong? What did I screw up? What did I break? Am I being fired? Nobody's first thought would be, I'm going to get a raise today. 
That would not be your first thought. Your first thought is, I'm in trouble. I know that my kids get nervous when I call their name. If I'm in one room and they're in another and I say, Aaron, maybe she's going to be in trouble. Maybe I'm just going to ask her to do something. Maybe I'm going to say, let's go out for ice cream. But her first thought, I know it, and all of them, is, what did I do? For just a split second, Will told me yesterday, you know, I used to feel that a lot when I was younger. I don't so much anymore. I said, why not? He said, well, I've learned to face up to what I did. (laughs) So they must think, they must know they're in trouble a lot. I cannot tell you how many of you, it's it's truly uncountable how many of you have called my office here in this building, the principal's office. Even though I have told you I hate that. I hate it. Going to my office to have a meeting. It feels like we're going to the principal's office. Although I have never once, never in eight and a half years, have I called somebody in there to chew them out. Feels like we're going to the principal's office. (laughs) It's the standard comment. Sarah and I have invited couples and families over to our house for dinner. And after we've eaten together and spent the whole evening together, it's happened more than once. They've confessed, we thought you called us here because we were in trouble. And Sarah and I just wanted to get to know them and have fun and talk or play a game or whatever. And, and after the fact, it's like, we were really nervous. So the whole evening was a waste because you weren't yourself. And you were just waiting for the hammer to drop. Maybe that was some of you and you hadn't confessed it. But there's, there have been people that actually confessed it at the end. Like, wow, that, that was way different than we thought. <laughs> Last night, I'm working on typing up my notes and I'm in my chair, it's Freedom and I were just home by ourselves, and she comes by and says something like, you know, are you working on your sermon? And I said, yeah. And I decided in a split second I made this decision I was going to test this theory, and I said, oh, it's going to be great, you're going to love it, you are the main subject. I said this to Freedom, and, and she's like, really? And I said, yeah, and she walked off real quick. And I let that sit for 10 or 20 minutes, and she comes back in the living room, and I said, so when I told you you were the main subject of tomorrow's sermon, how did that make you feel? And she just stared at me, and I said, were you nervous? Yeah. I said, do you think I was going to embarrass you? Yeah. I said, what if, did it occur to you at all that maybe my sermon was going to spend the entire time bragging on how great of a daughter you are? No. <laughs> Prove my point, huh? It is. We're all psychotic. (laughs) The first thing we think is that we're in trouble. Come on. Because we are rule-oriented and we are law-oriented. And the truth be told, you are judging so many other people unconsciously all through your day that you know they are judging you. And it turns us all into psychos. You are continually making judgments about other people's appearance, their hair, their car, their money, their actions at work, how stupid they are, or whatever. They're driving. If I were to ask somebody who I have authority over, like Josh, or if I had an employee or something, or if I had Sarah or my kids, if I said, at the beginning of the day, I said, what are you going to do today? That person, like daughter or Josh or whoever, 
can get all nervous and paranoid and how should I answer that? What, what, what am I supposed to be doing today? Did I, did I not do something yesterday? Why is he asking that question? And see it as control and fear and or wow, Mitch really cares about me and I feel covered and safe and loved and he's concerned about my plans and needs and things. And, but we go right to paranoia. If the boss asks a question or if the pastor asks a question, we go straight to, how should I answer that? Oh, what, what is he looking for? One of our kids' chores is to clean the bathroom and just last week, we have two bathrooms, and they get cleaned every other day, and it's Aaron's shift right now on the bathroom cleaning chore. And I asked her, which bathroom did you clean yesterday? The other one. <laughs> I am asking for information, but she instantly thinks she's being tested and checked up after. And Freedom chimes in immediately and says, I hate it when you ask that question. I don't know how to answer it. How can you not know how to answer it? Which bathroom did you clean yesterday? There's only one answer to that question. I cleaned that toilet or I cleaned that one. I don't know how to answer that question. We are a bunch of paranoid freaks. And I know that we've all had really, really bad authorities that put us in this situation. You had parents that didn't do it right. You've had bosses and you've had pastors that were horrible. I understand that. All of us did. But you know, you've heard my, my growing up story and my dad, and you know how much I love my dad and how much we've been restored. But my dad was so completely unpleasable when I was a kid. I think I can see now that God used that to completely break me free from pleasing people. I get told by various people a lot, oh, you're really brave, because I'll do something that I know is going to really make people mad or whatever. But I've got to do the right thing. I've got to say the tough things, whatever. It's my job. I have to. But it's not, I really don't think I'm very brave because it scares me. Like, I know this is going to make this person mad got to do it anyway. Um, but I, I really think my dad raged at anything we did, whether it was my fault or not. It was so completely unpleasable, and I knew it would happen a couple times a day. I just knew it would. That I, I really think God, I'm not saying God orchestrated that or whatever, but God used that to break the fear of man in me. Because as a teenager, I didn't even try. And I had a sinful attitude about it, and God's led me through all that, and you've heard most of all that story. But you've got to be free. What I'm talking about is being free from intimidation. I am not talking about going over into rebellion and not caring about people. Do you hear me? I'm not talking about rebellion and hard-heartedness and anger and just F the world and I'll do what I want. That is absolutely nothing of what I am talking about. But I'm talking about we do not make decisions to keep mom happy if the right thing to do is going to make her mad. You do the right thing anyway. But you concern yourself with what mom thinks. Mom, I love you. I know you want this, but we've prayed about it. We really think this is the right thing. 
You do not make decisions because other people demand it. I'm not talking about being lazy at work. I'm not talking about not caring about church and serving God. I hope you hear all this. But we've got to get over our fear of other people and our concern for what they think in an unhealthy way, I mean. If a parent were to give his teen son a curfew, the son who has a rule-oriented thinking can see that as a limitation and a law and a control. And if he loves his parents and understands relationship, he can see that his parents love him and they're caring about his safety and his character. So when God gives commands for us to obey, we can either see them as rules that limit our freedom and a standard that condemns us as a failure, or we can be glad that he loves us and wants us to be safe and healthy and clean and free. Two different hearts, same word of God, two completely different responses. One sees it as control and limitation and a list of do's and don'ts. And the other sees it as a loving father who is keeping me safe and teaching me the way to life. And I gladly obey. When we come to worship or pray, we can come in fear or obligation or guilt or we can come in celebration and desire and faithful expectation that something good is going to happen. If you feel judged or rejected or paranoid, if you're emotionally looking over your shoulder all the time, that's more about what's in your heart than the people you're worried about pleasing. As a father and a pastor, I can tell you that God is lonely. He's really sad that his children are scared of him. And our automatic thought is that he is disappointed in us. Every time, every time in the Bible, an angel appears or the word of the Lord comes, the people are scared. And what is the first thing the angel or Jesus or the people have to say? Do not be afraid. Peace on earth. Goodwill toward men. Every single time. In Scripture, there is fear when people encounter God. And God's first thing has to be, stop being afraid of me. We are terribly afraid we're going to get into trouble. We're terrified at the prospect of God's anger. We spend so much time and energy hiding and presenting and justifying and negotiating and excusing and retrying and explaining and avoiding Him. And all he really wants is honest confession that we haven't done it and we can't do it. That is all he wants. Is confession and repentance. For you to be available, for you to be willing, for you to trust him. He knows you're not getting it right and you're not going to get it perfect. But he will lead you. And it will get better. That's all he wants. I find that my sin, when I go to God afterward, has never kept him from me. And I have blown it, said some horrible things to Sarah, or gotten unjust or angry with the kids, or gone a place on the internet I shouldn't go, and I go to God and I, am, I feel horrible. I've really, truly blown it big time. And when I go to him, he never, ever, not once has he ever said, I'm not talking to you today. 
What I do find separates him from me is when I've been too busy to read my Bible for five days. When my prayer time has been real quick and informal and I go on and I haven't, I've shown him that he is not important and valuable for a, a, a few days, I, it's really hard to get back into his presence after that. It is my busyness and my laziness and my lack of caring about him that separates me from his presence. It is not ever my sin when I go to confess it. I'm not talking about hiding big sin. That'll kill you. I'm serious. You do not be a hypocrite. You do not hide sin. But I'm talking about when you honestly go to God to confess your sin. I'm sorry I blew it again. I'm sorry. He will never, ever, ever push you away. It's only our own fear or our own complacency that keeps us out of the presence of God. You need to know that Jesus is not comparing you to anyone, including himself. Let me say that again. Jesus is not comparing you to anyone, including himself. God is not scowling at you. The Bible is not God's instruction manual or his measuring rod or his spanking stick. It is a living instrument in the hands of the Holy Spirit of God that proclaims God's work in the world on behalf of sinners who need saving. Come on. The Bible, yes, it has commands and it has lists of do's and don'ts, but it is not God's measuring rod so he can show you how bad you have failed. Every single story in the Bible, except for the life of Jesus, every single story in the Bible is we screwed up and God saves us because he loves us. Every single story, except for Jesus, is that we blow it and God loves us and rescues us. That's the Bible. That's the gospel. It's not some measuring rod that he beats us with because we didn't live up to his commands. Yes, the Bible defines holiness and it tells us how we have to behave and what God's perfect expectation is. But then the gospel tells us Jesus fulfilled that. We come in faith. Instead of fear, you find life instead of condemnation. If you are avoiding God in fear, it says more about you than it does about him. If you think that the Bible is a list of do's and don'ts, it says more about your heart than God's. If you're trying to be perfect to earn love, either from God or people, you're actually betraying your own heart and your own lack of faith because faith is the only answer. The just shall live by faith. Faith is believing what we do not see and what we do not feel. If it is not easy or natural for you to believe that you are lovable, or approved, or justified, or valuable, then it is your faith that you have to believe that nothing can separate you from the love of God, including your own failures. Jesus paid the entire price for anything that you've done, and that if God would give the life of his son for you, then you are valuable and lovable and approved, even if the world or any other person says not. If you do find it easy to believe that you are lovable and valuable, you're one of those narcissists that I talked about earlier. You're deluded. 
Your faith is to believe that you are not perfect and that you deserve hell and not heaven, and you do, in fact, need Jesus' mercy as much as the rest of us failures. And you do not and cannot qualify for it. We have so many automatic and unconscious assumptions that we have to qualify for what God gives us. If you serve Him in love, it is a gift. From you to God, your obedience is a gift. If you serve him in fear, it is a payment. Do you hear me? If you serve God and you do what you do because you love him and you're thankful for what he has done for you, that's a gift. But if you do what you do because you're scared of his anger or you're trying to earn his approval, that's a payment. And the Song of Solomon says, if you try to buy love, it will infuriate the lover. You cannot buy love. You can buy prostitution. You can buy fake friendship. But if somebody really loves you, and you offer to pay them for it, you would kill every bit of the love in their heart. Is it not true that when you really, truly have real generosity in your heart and you want to do something for somebody and you give them a gift or serve them and, they're, and they try to stop you? Or they feel guilty and won't take it? Or they try to pay you back? It ruins the relationship. Some of you aren't generous enough to have ever experienced that. But a lot of you are. You really wanted to do something nice for somebody and they won't accept it or they, they think they have to pay you back. It ruins everything. Don't try to pay God back. It's a slap in his face. Because you can't. And if you try, it's a rejection. Faith is the answer. Faith is that tension of knowing that I do not and I cannot qualify. I can never live up to the standard. I cannot please God and I cannot please people. But I believe that God is love and that his word is perfect and true and that he means what he says and that the gospel is true and that I am forgiven and I am approved of and I am received and I am valuable completely apart from what I have done or not done, good or bad. I must live only in faith toward Jesus as the perfect one. Matthew eleven twenty eight to 30, Jesus said, Come to me, all you who are weary and carry heavy burdens. I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and let me teach you because I am humble and gentle in heart and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy to bear and the burden I give you is light. Let me say that again. This is Jesus speaking to you. Come to me. All of you who are weary and carry heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and let me teach you, because I am humble and gentle in heart, and I will give you rest for your souls. For your yoke is easy to bear, and the burden I give you is light. Other people in the world and expectations, public opinion, your own fear, have loaded you down with burdens, and your soul is heavy. Maybe it's 
fear, maybe it's anger, maybe it's unforgiveness towards somebody else, maybe it's unforgiveness about yourself, maybe it's anxiety or depression. It can show up in a lot of different ways, but your soul is heavy. Jesus said, I want to give you rest in your soul. Jesus' word today is rest. Stop trying to live up to everybody else's demands and just do what is right. Take my load upon you because it is light. Jesus has a yoke for us. He has a load for us. But it's light when we live in his love. He says, let me teach you. I am humble and gentle in heart. If you come to him, he will unload your conscience. He will unload your shoulders, your mind, your heart, your stomach of all of its burdens. Some of you, it's your stomach is eating away in worry or guilt or shame. Some of you, it's your heart. Some of you, it's your mind. Some of you, it's your back. You are bearing burdens. There is stuff living in your soul that is showing up in your body that is not supposed to be there. Jesus wants to take it all off and give you rest. Real soul rest. Peace. That you are loved and you are approved. You are received. There are no demands. Just an expectation that we have faith and that we be willing to obey anything. We do not have to produce anything. Do not have to perform anything. Just come and let him teach you. If you need to get on your knees where you're at and give up some burdens, do it. If you want to come up here and closer to the Kleenex box, go right ahead. Let's get some burdens out. Bow your heads and let's pray. Thank you, Jesus. That you give us rest. That you release us from all the demands and expectations and intimidations that other people put on us or maybe they're in ourselves. Maybe it's just our own craziness. Worrying about what other people are thinking all the time. Maybe it's not being able to say no. Maybe it's never having said yes to what we were supposed to say yes to. Well, please forgive us for obeying other gods instead of you, for giving ourselves to please people, for making decisions that we knew were not the right way to go just to keep somebody else happy. Forgive us for being fearful of authority and for avoiding you because we were scared of you. Father, we believe your word. We trust your testimony, that you love us, that you are patient, that you are long-suffering, that you are gentle, that you are good, that yes, we have blown it. We give up trying to hide that or spin it or excuse it in some way. And we come, Lord, and we bear it all to you. You see it all anyway. We've borne the burden of sin 
that's eating away at our insides. We've borne the burden of worry. We've borne the burden of expectations of being driven by some fantasy image of our future. We've given ourselves as slaves to debt and money and accomplishment and influence and fame, doing big things. We've spiritualized it pretty well, but it's all just selfishness. Lord, we receive your love and your forgiveness. We receive your peace in our heart, in our mind, in our body. We receive your peace now. We give up our burdens. We give up those demands we've placed on ourselves, things that other people have put on us, things we thought that you were demanding. It's all unhealthy. You are God of peace and rest. Lord, we serve you out of love, out of gratitude, out of joy, and not out of dead obligation or fear or some attempt at paying you back. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for setting us free from intimidation, from paranoia, from depression, from anxiety, from fear. We don't have to look over our shoulder. We don't have to look down at the floor. We look up to you and to your throne of mercy. And we come boldly to you to receive the mercy that we desperately need. You are our only hope. Forgive us for trying to manage our own image and reputation. You are our only hope. Thank you for receiving us. Thank you for smiling. Thank you for lowering your scepter and calling us to your throne. Joyfully, smilingly asking us what we have come to ask for. Thank you for your patience. Thank you for waiting until we realized all this and not leaving us, getting tired of us, you patiently wait until we confess and repent and then you remove all the burdens so in Jesus name Holy Spirit I release you to remove burdens from minds and backs and stomachs and hearts and lungs and hips be released now in Jesus name go burdens leave memories go chains fall off baggage be burned Condemnation, go. Fear, go. Intimidation, go. In Jesus' name. We are the children of God and we will not be afraid. We will not be afraid of Him and we will cower before no man. We will serve everyone. We will not fear anyone. We will not make decisions on public opinion. We will do what is right and we will say what is necessary. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Holy Spirit. Thank you. Amen. Amen. Hey. That's good.